Welcome to season six of the Life Giver Podcast, a place for honest conversation and hope for your marriage and home. This is your host, Corey Weathers, and I'm a military spouse, clinician, and advocate. And I'm bringing topics that I hear from the service community and counseling room to the podcast. This season, we're talking about what it means to be strong in body, mind, and spirit. And I'm giving you the challenge of rising above your circumstances to become the best version of you. So grab a cup of coffee or head out for that run. We have a lot to talk about. Welcome to the Life Giver Podcast. This is Matt Weathers. Today's episode is part of a three-part series on restoration. In this series, Corey will unpack God's design for restoration in relationships, especially your marriage. Recorded at a faith-based event in Oregon, Corey shows how your marriage can move past hurt and into a more intimate and forgiving place. While the Life Giver podcast is not necessarily a faith-based podcast, it is a place for honest conversation. And we believe that conversation often needs to address the deeper questions of spirituality and deeper healing for the soul. Are you guys ready? We are going to dive in. I gave you a little teaser um, yesterday, last night, about, um, you know, this equation that I'm going to give you, which, I mean, honestly, I'm not, this is not about me, but like, I've, my life has been changed since I like figured out this equation in my own personal life. And um, I just want to start off by saying thank you for showing up tonight. Thank you for coming back. I don't take that for granted either. Um, Last night, we talked about Paul, and we talked about 2 Corinthians, and we talked about Paul um, having a lot more drama in his life than I know I ever thought. Um, And isn't it, you know, it occurred to me this morning, I was thinking about this, and I was like, you know what? Like, no character in the Bible ever is like a character in the Bible. Like, they were not chosen by God, except for Jesus, because they got it right, like completely. You know what I mean? Like that occurred to me this morning. And it was kind of nice to figure out that Paul wasn't perfect either. Like we all know, well, maybe we all don't know, but if you didn't know, Paul like killed a bunch of Christians before he became Paul that wrote, you know, half the New Testament, you know? So, I mean, it was a pretty rough background, you know? And, and then we can like have this, um, this life that kind of you know, completely turns around and he loves Jesus. And I don't know about you, but the Sunday school version of Paul to me is just like, he just must've been perfect after that. He just got it all right. And he was chosen by God to write half the, half the Bible, which he had a lot of time on his hands and um, probably a lot of people helping him with that. You know, I just imagine him like my husband sometimes when, you know, he just starts going off and talking and like somebody else is furiously trying to write down all of his words because he's just, any extroverts in the room? Like y'all just talk in the air and think somebody's taking notes for you. Like that's, that's my husband. (laughs) I imagine Paul's like that. He's obviously got a lot of words, right? Okay. But I mean, I don't know about you, but it was comforting to me to find this like dramatic moment in Paul's life where like, wait a minute, like things were hard for Paul. I mean, yeah, he was shipwrecked. That's terrible. He was starving. That's kind of terrible too. But relationally, relationally, things were hard. I just figured he got it right every time. So let's catch up to where he is, okay? So he has, he has gone to Corinth. He has established this church. He has poured himself into building this church. He has trained people. He has set the structure up. He has given them everything he could possibly give them. It's like your children where you're like, I don't know what else to do with the kid. Like I have given you everything I know how to give you. And they're still like, I don't know if I feel fully loved. 
And you're like, I've given everything. Like he gave everything possible, right? And he's like, I got, I got things to do. I got a thing. I got to go. I got to go do another church. I got to go. You're not the only ones in the world, so I got to go. So he leaves and he's like, you got it? You good? Like, you know what you're doing? right? We're all good. We all agree. We all have the same values. We, you know what you're doing. You know what you're doing. You know what you're doing. Okay, I'm going to go. So he leaves and then things completely fall apart. And we hear that there's bickering and there's rumors and there's people in the church doing really terrible things that they shouldn't be doing. And you can go back in first Corinthians and read some of that, but they are just really falling apart and they're fighting and they're fighting about Paul and they are also throwing him under the bus. Like literally throwing him under the bus. And this is not like on Facebook Live where you can defend yourself. He's hearing it probably months later, right? Where he can't defend himself. So he is distraught. This is horrible. I don't even, like, I thought that they were my friends. Like I thought that they loved me and I love, and I love them. What happened? Right? Like this betrayal. I want you to get that picture in your mind, this betrayal, right? And so he goes there because that's what you do, right? We talked about that yesterday. Like you can't end this way, you know? And I don't think he's going there just because the Lord has laid on his heart to like plant a church and you better go fix it, Paul. Like I think there's part of him that's, I love these people. What is going on? There's a relational distress there. And so he runs to Corinth right? He goes there and he gets there and he tries to defend himself. And you know what they do? They say it to his face. They say it to his face. Like these, have you ever been in a relationship with somebody and you thought that they were your friend and then they just, it just turns ugly. It just turns ugly. And then they're saying things to your face and you're like, I don't know what happened. This is not what I thought it was going to be. And I can't believe you're saying this to me right now because it's the deepest wounding that I could possibly imagine you saying this. And he's so, it's so painful for Paul that he leaves without, it's like, I just imagine him being like frozen and paralyzed. And like, have you ever been in that moment too? You're like, you're just so shocked. You're just, I could say all the words right now, but that would be really bad. So I'm just gonna go. You know, and I thought about this too. I was, you know, what was, what was actually happening right then? Was he leaving because, you know, I think the easy answer would be like, Paul is that guy that got it right. And he just had all the self-control he needed and he just did the right thing. And he was like, you know, I'm just going to hold my tongue because I love Jesus and apparently you don't. And so I'm just going to leave and let you think about it. I don't think that sounds very human. I mean, I, I hope he had that. I mean, he wrote half the New Testament, so I hope he got there at some point. But I don't know. There's something human in this that I think we all struggle with things in that moment. And there's emotions and there's insecurities and there's fears and there's hurt. There's such deep hurt. And I, and I don't know. There's a part of me. I don't know. We won't know till we go to heaven and ask him, I guess. But there's a part of me that's like, I don't know. Maybe I'm just putting myself in the story. But if it were me, I'd be like so devastated. I mean, I'm an, any introverts in the room? Like you don't have your words until you think about it for like three days. You know, introverts, if you're married, you're usually married to your opposite. So I'm just, all the extroverts in the room, I'm giving you a clue. Stop chasing them down the hallway. You know, you do it. Stop chasing them down the hallway and give them a minute to find their words. You know, elbow and I see you over there. I see you. I see you. Okay. So I don't know. That's for me. I think I would have been in that moment. I would have been like, you know, I think I need to, 
I think I need to go collect myself. I, I, I don't even know what to say. I don't even know how to fix this. I don't even... I, but there's something so painful that happened in that face-to-face -face meeting that he left without resolving it. And he goes back to Strahd. And then there's that waiting. We talked about that last night. We talked, there was a waiting period. What do you do? What do you do when you don't know if you can resolve it? You don't even know if it's worth resolving. Do I go back and fight for it? Do I find my words and... And try to go back and defend myself a second time? Do I, do I just let it go? Do I just numb myself out and just say, you know what? Or, oh, here's a good one. They're just such terrible people. The devil's got a hold of them. And so we're just gonna like move on, shake the dust off our feet. You know, there, there are times. We're gonna talk about that tonight. Like, how do you know when it's not something that you can restore? There's so many choices in the waiting, isn't there? And when it's mixed with hurt, there's so many opportunities to do so many things. And so there's this waiting that happens with Paul. And then he writes that letter. And we've done that. I bet a lot of you have done that too. I know I've done that. You write the letter, right? Which, by the way, is not a terrible strategy. This is the counselor talking. It's okay. I have lots of couples that write to each other. They text sometimes in a conflict better than they talk out loud. They have a notebook that they share and they write it back and forth. My husband, just with the last appointment, he's the extrovert. We shared a journal for the entire time that he was deployed. The first time we tried to do that and every day we wrote to each other, I was just like, I don't know what else to say. And he loved it as an extrovert. For the first time, he realized, wow, journaling works. Like, you actually find your words. So it's actually a great strategy. Paul found his words tearfully, agonized, cried. If you, if those of you who are like the, the nerds out there that want to know, like it's in second Corinthians chapter two, tearfully, tearfully writes this letter. We do not have that letter. All we have is first Corinthians and second Corinthians. So the letter happens in between. He sends it with Titus. Titus is his apprentice. He's, and you know, how many of you have little eyes and little ears that are watching everything you're doing? You know, and here's Titus, like just trying to love Jesus. You know, just I'm going to follow Paul. And I'm just going to do what he does. Can you imagine the pressure of Paul? Like, oh, and something tells me that he wasn't so perfect that he was like, I have Titus watching, so I'm just going to show him and model for him. No, he is cheerfully agonizing and crying over this letter. He is showing emotion. There's emotion there. So he sends Titus with this letter because he can't go. And then again, it's not modern times, so there's a waiting. There's a waiting. So we're going to pick up in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 if you want to follow along. If I can, I did it again. I put in the wrong code. Um, we're going to start in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Before I do that, we're going to do a really fast, fast, fast review up on the slide at the top. We're going to go fast. If you're going to be a note taker, it's going to be a lot of information. We're going to dive in, okay? Um, last night, we covered that restoration requires longing. Do we understand that? We're going to see a little bit more on how that plays out tonight. Um, and that longing at its core is designed by God to fuel growth and help you grow and help restoration happen. That's going to be key tonight, too. All right, 
here's what I want us to start with. Two things, and then we're going to dive into 2 Corinthians. You ready? The first thing is, and I highly encourage you to write these down, <laughs> is, number one, restoration usually involves two sides, and you have influence in both of them. Now, that might sound a little bit different from what you're used to, right? Because don't you always hear, like, you only have control of yourself, right? And you do. You do only have control of yourself, but you have incredible influence into both sides. I think sometimes when we say, I can only control myself, we are forgetting the influence that we have in someone else's life around us. And we are forgetting that by you controlling yourself, it does impact the other person, whether you control yourself or not. Did you know that by doing the right thing for the right reason for a really long time, by the way, that's the equation for trust. That's another talk another time. But by doing the right thing, and having control of yourself actually will spark something in the other person. You have these two things I'm about to share with you. If you get, I mean, I have so many really important things for you to walk away with tonight, but these two are so foundational. There's two sides, but you do have influence into both. Number two, restoration is focused on repair not perfection. So many relationships, marriage especially, parenting especially, we put this level and this standard on us, this level of perfection, and then we shame ourselves when we don't get it right. Like, what's wrong with me? Why can't I get this right? Look, oh, I did it again. Look, I did it again, right? Relationships are not about perfection. And as long as you use that measuring stick in your life, you will be wrong every day and every time. You will not get it right. Paul didn't get it right. Jesus is the only person on the planet that got it right. Okay? So the sooner that you accept the fact that you are not perfect and you will never be perfect and that your relationships have more to do with repair, and by the way, constant repair. There is no such thing as repairing a relationship and saying, check the box, I did it, we are good from now on. It doesn't work that way. Restoration is ongoing. And that might sound really painful, but the sooner you grasp that your relationships have more to do with repair, the sooner you will be freed from the shame, which is different from guilt, by the way, so that you can start getting it right and you can get on purpose and you can start repairing faster. That's the goal. That's what we're going to learn tonight. How do we repair faster? Let go of the perfection, embrace repairing, and now we just need to learn how to repair. How you repair is more important than how often you get it right. Did you hear that? How you repair is more important than how often you get it right. Some of y'all should be sighing at this point. Surely, for those of you who struggle with anger, 
Or maybe you grew up in a home that there wasn't a whole lot of love and affection in your home and you really struggle with finding the right words or reaching out as much as you probably feel like you should or whatever, like, and you just feel like you, or you have this battle in your, in your marriage of like, why can't you just get it right? Why can't you learn? Why can't you change? Why can't you grow? It's a struggle. You're not perfect. You're human. You're flawed. And guess what? You married a flawed person who's also not going to get it right. So the sooner we get on board and start learning how to repair things and repair them faster, the sooner you are going to feel a whole lot better about your relationship. Does that make sense? Okay. Now we will go to the Bible. All right. So let's pick up where Paul now, as he sends Titus, is leaning in, right? We talked about longing, right? He's now leaning in to the relationship. Paul is making a choice here. He has the choice to run away. He has the choice to quit. He has the choice to abandon. He has the choice to sulk, doesn't he? But he doesn't. He leans in and he writes the letter anyways. We're going to talk about that letter here in just a second when we get to verse 8. But we're going to start in verse 5. And we're going to see what happens. By the way, Titus didn't come back for a long time. And Paul freaked out. Freaked out. He freaked out so much he thought Titus died. He thought he died, and so he actually went to Macedonia to find him and then met Titus there, and that's what we're about to find out. But he literally is freaking out. Like, so Paul has an anxiety problem, okay? All right, for good reason, right? Like, ooh, I'm sending them to a quarreling church, and it's my, it's my baby, it's my apprentice, and he's not coming back. Okay, so we get to verse, um, we're going to read verse 5 through 7. This is Paul talking. When we arrived in Macedonia... There was, and he's talking to the church of Corinth, okay? He's, this is the letter that he's writing back. We're going to find out what, the, what Corinth's response to his severe letter was in just a minute, okay? But so he's talking to the church of Corinth, and he's talking about how he met Titus up in Macedonia, okay? So when we arrived in Macedonia, there was no rest for us. We faced conflict from every direction with battles on the outside and fear on the inside, but God, who encourages those who are discouraged, encouraged us with the arrival of Titus. So he's not just fearing persecution. He's fearing the lack of resolve. He's fearing the relationship. He's fearing things falling apart and, and, and them not responding to the letter in the way that he had hoped. There's a lot on the line here. Verse 7. His presence was a joy, but so was the news that he brought of the encouragement he received from you when he told us how much you longed to see me and how sorry you are for what happened and how loyal you are to me. I was filled with joy. So what did the church of Corinth do? They leaned in, didn't they? They leaned back. What a vulnerable risk for Paul to put himself out there. Anytime you put yourself out there, it's, there's a vulnerable risk in restoration. It's dangerous. It's uncomfortable. It's really scary. And you can get your heart trampled every time. That's the risk you take. But if you don't, you will never know if they're willing to lean in. You will never know. The longer you hide, the more you might miss out on the opportunity for them to lean back. So, okay, Titus is safe. We're good. Titus is safe. Corinth is kind of doing the right thing. We're going to figure out what they're doing. So let's look at, see what happens in verse eight. So this is where we get to the right answer. 
they, they did repent, by the way, and you're going to hear that word. And I know that's a really scary word, by the way. I know using that word is scary. And so stick with me if that's like cringy. That's a new word, cringe, with the kids. I don't even know how to use it. Somewhere up there was savage. Anybody? Okay. Anyways, sidetrack, rabbit trail. Okay. So Corinth has leaned in. Things start to resolve. We get to verse 8. And this is where I want us to break something down because this is where where we get to his letter. This is so important, guys. Verse 8, he says, get ready for this. I am not sorry. I am not sorry. By the way, I'm I'm reading the, um, uh, I think it's the ASV version. I am not sorry that I sent that severe letter to you. Though I was sorry at first, for I know it was painful for you for a little while. Okay, that's a key verse, and this is an important part of the equation. Because what Paul did in that letter was he communicated his honesty. He communicated his truth. And I want us to pause there. I want us to pause there because restoration requires grace-filled honesty. And I want us to unpack that just for a second. Because sometimes what happens in relationships where restoration is not happening is that we are not talking. And we are not communicating. And we've gotten to a place where we are so afraid to talk that we are, we don't even know what our own truth is. Some of you struggle to even know what your voice is or know what you're feeling or know what your thoughts are or feel if your feelings are even valid or right or good or like who's right and who's wrong. And, and let me tell you something right now, because you exist, because God created you to live on this planet and breathe this air, you have thoughts, you have feelings, You have perspectives, and those are valid. And they are just as valid as your spouse's. They are just as valid as your child's, or your mom's, or your boss's. The basic human right to have a thought, a feeling, and a brain to use it. I don't know where we get in relationships where we start devaluing each other and saying, your perspective is wrong because it's not mine. Now, my husband and I have had a 20-year debate. I think it's starting to resolve. A 20-year debate on do intentions matter? Anybody else have this argument? Like, you know, when you get in this conflict and you start arguing and you're like, but I didn't mean to. I mean, it wasn't my intention. It's not the way I meant to say it. And the other person is like, but it hurt. Doesn't that matter? Well, yeah, it does. But like, if you just believe that I didn't meant it, then you shouldn't be hurt. You shouldn't be hurt because I didn't mean it. You know what's interesting about the debate that he and I have had on that is that um, the, the one, <laughs> it's always the one who didn't mean it is the one that's arguing for intentions. Do you know what I mean? Like whoever's hurt is the one that's intentions don't matter. But whoever didn't mean to do it, say intentions do. And so finally, after 20 years, we were like, I have a feeling intentions don't really matter. I mean, they do kinda. But my point here is that your feelings matter and both can be true at the same time. You can both not mean it and the other person can also be in their own truth and say it hurt. Both are true. 
Why are we arguing about it? How you repair is more important than whether or not you get it right. The sooner you learn how to repair and go, all right, I didn't mean it. And I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry I said it in a way that hurt you. It doesn't matter what my intentions were. What matters is that you have feelings. Those matter because you matter. Every time you talk your spouse or your child out of their feelings, you might as well say you don't matter. I'm being so direct with you guys tonight. I know it. It's because I have a small amount of time with you and I love you deeply. And we don't have time. We don't have time for relationships to break down. We don't have time for silence. We don't have time for hurt. We don't have time to sit and wait it out. So I'm not mad at you. As Paul would say in his letter, I am not here to condemn you. I'm here to speak truth. And the truth is to the church of Corinth, he said, you're doing something wrong. You are doing something destructive. You are destroying this relationship. Do something different. How do you know if your honest truth is worth saying? Number one, value the fact that you have a thought and a feeling. Second, filter it. Filter it through what is good and what is pure and what is holy. Is it coming through sin in your life? Is it coming through jealousy or pride or selfishness or just wanting to get it right or just or not wanting to be wrong again? Is it just because you want to be argumentative? All of those things are, are selfish and prideful and are not going to lead you towards restoration. So if that is your truth, we got to filter it. Just because we feel it doesn't mean we say it, right? Filter it. Filter it through whether or not it is of God. Seek godly counsel. Seek scripture. See if it is something that aligns with God's word. Paul, we can say, did that. He was humiliated, but he went and found his words, and then he spoke the truth of you are in sin, and you are destroying things. You are listening to gossip. There's sexual immorality that's happening in the church that's dividing everybody. You're ripping relationships apart. Do something different. So, but here's the other thing. Do you remember when I read to you last night the scripture that we closed with where he said, I love you. I have said everything. I've laid my heart bare. I'm opening my heart to you. Open your heart to me. Remember when we read that? That was grace. Honesty and truth not paired with grace will cut someone down at the root. John the Baptist was known for speaking truth, but he never delivered truth without the hope. When you deliver honesty, when you deliver your truth, if you do not pair it with hope and you do not pair it with kindness and grace, you might as well just cut someone down at the root. Grace-filled honesty and kindness. I love you. I'm, I'm leaning into this relationship. I want to restore this relationship. Join me in restoring this relationship. This is worth it. And 
I am asking you to change. Do you see how you pair them together? You can't do one without the other, okay? So a huge part of this equation is can you communicate your truth depending on which side you're on, right? Because the next part of the equation is, well, what if you're on the other side of that, right? What do you do now? All right, so let's read verse nine. Now I'm glad that I sent it because it hurt you. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm glad that I sent it, not because it hurt you. <laughs> sorry about that. Not because it hurt you, but because the pain caused you to repent and change your ways. It was the kind of sorrow God wants his people to have. So you were not harmed by us in any way. So he's basically saying, here's the grace again. He's saying, I know this is hard to hear. I know it is causing you psychological discomfort to hear the truth. I have empathy for that. I understand that that is causing some kind of grief in you. I'm not cold in that. Again, if we just deliver the truth and just say, you know what? You did it. You got to take the consequences. Own it. Feel it. Don't just swim in it for a little bit. That is not love. To speak the truth and also say, I know this doesn't feel good, but I'm saying it because I love you and I am for us, not against us. I am for you, not against you. I need you to hear this in love and kindness. And it is in that love and kindness together that they repent because they feel his love at the same time as they feel the the truth. All right, this is the next big part, and I need you guys to lean in and stick with me, okay? Because this is also another big part of this. Verse 10, for the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads us away from sin and results in salvation. There is no regret for that kind of sorrow, but worldly sorrow, which lacks repentance, results in spiritual death. I'm going to read the whole thing, and then I'm going to explain it. Just see what this godly sorrow produced in you. Now, in, in other versions, it says godly grief or worldly grief, okay? So he's saying, I delivered the truth, you felt a lot of stuff, and now you have a choice. You had two choices. There is godly grief and there's worldly grief. And he says, just see what this godly, I'm gonna use grief, godly grief produced in you, such earnestness, such concern to clear yourselves, such indignation, such alarm, such longing to see me, such zeal and such a readiness for justice. You showed that you have done everything necessary to make things right. My purpose then was not to write about who did the wrong or who was wronged. I wrote to you so that in the sight of God, you could see for yourselves how loyal you are to us, the relationship when you deliver. And I know we, any number of people in this room could be thinking restoration in a relationship in so many different ways. It could be your mom. It could be your, your marriage right now. It could be your children and it could be all of it, right? So apply whatever the Lord wants to apply in your heart tonight. Let him apply it because there is a choice in this moment where there is truth that has to be put out there. There's communication that has to happen in relationships. And as soon as you do that, you have two choices. You have godly grief and you have worldly grief. Now, it's interesting that they use the word grief, isn't it? Because usually when you think grief, you think loss, right? But what he's saying is these two choices, you have godly grief that produces repentance, 
We're gonna talk about what that means in a minute. But it produces eagerness, willingness, leaning in, longing for the relationship. Good things are happening. Brene Brown, anybody, anybody know Brene Brown? If you've heard of Brene Brown, she's a researcher that studied shame. And she's found that there's a difference between guilt and shame. Guilt is productive. God uses guilt. And that probably sounds weird to some of you who have been taught that God doesn't use guilt. But guilt is what God uses in conviction. When he convicts you of something, he's basically saying, you've done something wrong. Paul has said, you've done something wrong, so change it. And when you feel that uncomfortable feeling of guilt and you go, I did, I did do something wrong. I feel the need to fix it. When you own it and say, I need to fix it, it's productive. Guilt is highly productive. It moves you forward. It helps you lean in and long for the relationship. And because I long for the relationship, there's movement, there's growth. I'm gonna do something about it. I'm gonna say, I'm sorry. I'm gonna apologize. I'm gonna make it right. Guilt is very productive. Shame is not. And shame is not from the Lord. Guilt is I made a mistake. Shame is I am a mistake. Shame, according to Brene Brown, says it's the swampland of the soul. And guess what? If you build a house there, some of you guys know what I'm talking about. If you shame spiral, we all do it. I do it. We all do it. Somebody comes to you, your spouse comes to you and says, I need you to change something. And instead of us choosing godly grief and going, you're right, I should. I'm so sorry that that wounded you. What can I do to make that right? That's godly. Instead, we go into a shame spiral. I can't believe I did it again. I'm such a terrible person. I hate myself. Right? Or, I mean, sometimes it's, it's more volatile than that. We go into a shame spiral. We build a house there. And guess what? Nobody can save you from the shame spiral but you. Your spouse can't save you from it. Your spouse cannot save you from a shame spiral. When we start listening to the lies of the enemy that says, you're a terrible person. You're never going to get it right. This relationship isn't working. Just quit. You mess it up all the time. Look, you did it again. All it takes is a few whispers. And then what do we do? We entertain them. We have dinner with them. They become our besties. If you can learn to identify the difference between guilt and shame, your relationship will drastically change. Paul says in this section that worldly grief leads to death. Shame will always lead to the death of something. The death of your relationship, silence, it's not gonna go anywhere good. Godly grief moves you towards repentance. Does that make sense? We have a choice. And the enemy, this is the most, this is the, this is huge because the enemy is right here. This is where he will get you. Because if the enemy can just whisper all the things that he can to get you to go over here, he can, he can create a grand canyon between you and your spouse 
or you and your child. All he has to do is whisper shame. Whisper you're not good enough. Whisper this relationship isn't worth it. Whisper to you that it will never be restored. It's too far gone. Just let it go. And he will put you in this place of letting the relationship die. And this is where he will go after you. And I'm, I'm going to tell you right now. I'm going to tell you. The enemy... He spends so much energy on you. So much energy on your marriage. So much energy on your relationship with your kids. The, the, the gaps that he can create in all of that. And you know what? He could care less about you. All that energy that he spends on you. Because it has nothing to do with you. Because restoration is about the more you learn to repair and the more you learn to restore and the more you learn to, to not get it right perfectly, but getting repairing right, the more you are going to come face to face with other couples, other parents who are going to say, how in the world did you recover from that? And you're going to go, I don't know, only by the grace of God, because we were too far gone and we didn't know what else to do. And all we, all we could do is just own our sinfulness and own how we are just flawed and we need help and we need Jesus and we need each other and we need each other's forgiveness. And, and by the grace of God, he saved us. And that is what the enemy wants to deface. It's not about you. And that should make you really mad that he would spend that much energy tearing you down when it's not even about you. It's not even about you. So here is this equation. Restoration requires timely humility and repentance. So as soon as you get to this moment, the clock is ticking. The clock is ticking on what will you do and how will you react. How you repair is more important than, how you, than whether or not you get it right. The clock is ticking. The longer you wait to choose godly repentance, to just say, I am so sorry, please forgive me. Uh, the longer it takes for you to lean into the relationship, the longer it takes for you to exercise humility, the more death will start to happen. The more death will creep into your relationship and the harder it will be to restore. Does that make sense? The clock is ticking. Paul mentions the fact that they were eager they jumped on it. As soon as Titus got there, Titus was welcomed with like repentance and sorrow and eagerness. And what, what do we need to do to get it right? Let's solve it. Let's fix it. And because of that, that's where Paul says, I was so comforted. And we're going to talk about that tomorrow. We're going to talk about tomorrow. Like why? What, what's the point of all of this? Like this is really hard. I know. But we're going to get to the point of why tomorrow. But tonight... It's about timely response. Some of you in this room have relationships that you can restore starting tonight and you are wasting time. For what? To be right? To have someone else come your direction? Root yourself like a tree. Root yourself and be the person that your spouse wants to stay with. And I'm speaking to your spouse too. Root yourself and be the person 
that nobody would want to leave, that nobody would want to fight with. It's not about perfection. It's about you being the best person that God created you to be. Be that person. And then marriage especially has this amazing ebb and flow that happens to it right? Very rarely are couples growing at the same time, at the same pace. You be who God is asking you to be. Exercise what is right and good and godly and pure and own and be humble and be timely and be quick and be eager and lean in and fight for your marriage. Fight for it. You just, just be, you do you. If you do you, your spouse is going to be in a place where they go, I have a choice. Either I grow or they're going to outgrow me. I better do something. And guess what? You don't have control over what choice they make. But man, do you have influence. Grow. What is the next right thing? For you to do. Some of you, whatever relationship that is on your mind right now, some of you have said a lot of I'm sorry's. But I'm sorry is a band-aid. It's a one-way transaction. All you gotta do is say, meh, I'm sorry, and walk off. Will you forgive me is a transaction. Some of you have years of will you forgive me? to have a conversation about because I'm sorry's haven't done anything. Repentance is not just an I'm sorry. Repentance requires action. There's the eagerness and the willingness and the timeliness to move forward. And then there is the action of doing something different. If there is no action, then we're not changing. I hate to say it that strongly, but it's just true. If there is no action, no growth is happening. But Corey, what if I'm in a relationship where they're not choosing humility and they're not choosing repentance and they're not choosing eagerness and I have no control over that relationship? then it is fair to say that something is, is, there's grief there. There's a death there. And there's something to grieve through that. It is a very painful thing to grieve a relationship with a parent, with a child, a friend, a coworker, that it may not lead to restoration, but we have to grieve it. We can't just sweep it under the rug. The great news is, is that God has a plan to restore that void and that longing in your heart because you're longing for that relationship and that grief that you're feeling. That longing is not wrong. It was created by God. We talked about that last night. It's, it's created by God for you to long for it. And God has great intentions to fill that void. And sometimes it's through the body of Christ that he wants to fill that void. Sometimes it is the village of women around you who are gonna mother you like the mother you never had. And for some of you, it's the men that you need to connect with that are godly, that love you, that are gonna father you like the father you never had. But you have to grieve it and you have to allow God to fill that void because that longing is good and pure and important. 
But Corey, what if I'm trying to do the right thing and the other person is just being mean and they're not growing and they're not changing? It does not give you permission and an excuse to be destructive back. Be the person that you're proud of. Titus is watching. That hurts, doesn't it? I know this was hard to hear. Honesty and kindness. By the way, this is not the whole equation. There's an equal coming. I mean, it's a teaser. You got to come back. Honesty and kindness plus humility that requires willing, being willing in a timely fashion plus action can lead to restoration. All of those pieces have to be there for our relationship to be restored. As we close tonight, I know I'm being like super direct and super serious with all of you guys tonight, but I, I work with couples every day who sit in front of me and fight about who's gonna go first. And my answer to that is whoever's the most mature. Which one do you wanna be? Whoever's the most mature gets to go first. My husband and I actually made a game out of that. I lose most of the time, believe it or not. Not in the beginning of our marriage, actually. That was why we struggled so much because there was a lot of behavior changes that both of us needed to go through. And it took us leaning in to change some of the patterns in our relationship. But he made some huge changes. He really struggled with anger. We share our story a lot publicly, so I'm okay with sharing this. He struggled with anger. He struggled with the temper. I never, I never felt unsafe. And I, at some point, had to put my foot down and I had to speak my truth. I had to say, this is destroying us. It's, just, it's destroying me. And I will not allow this to destroy me anymore without you knowing what you are doing to my soul. If you feel distance from me, it's because you are pushing me away. And that was really hard for him to hear. And there was some dark days but he worked really hard and he made some really big changes in his life. And then you know what happened? He flipped it on me. It was my turn because I had withdrawn. I was the quiet withdrawn when I had felt so kind of emotionally unsafe that I just thought, you know what? You've hurt me so much that I'm just gonna like go behind my wall and we'll just kind of have this marriage, you know, just kind of halfway. I'm just gonna give you a piece of my heart because that's all you get. And he said, he came to me and he said, you know what? I have changed. I have done the things that you asked me to do. And you are destroying this marriage because you are withdrawn. And just because your sin is silent doesn't mean it's less destructive. Doesn't feel good to be on the other side. So now we have this little maturity game. Whenever we get into a conflict, if whoever's gonna be the most mature to go first, to be respectful, to lean in, and I lose most of the time, makes me really angry. But I, which is redemption, isn't it? It's redemption after 
starting a marriage like that, of course God would redeem it that way. Of course God would restore our marriage where he gets it right most of the time. And I get the reminder every time of the good work that has happened in his life. As we close, some of you in here have a step to take. Some of you have forgiveness to ask. Some of you have not leaned into this relationship for a really long time. And the silence is killing you both. Some of you have hard things you need to say in kindness. And you've been holding it back and that silence is destroying your relationship because you're not being honest. Either something needs to be said or something needs to be done. Or maybe, maybe you've done the hard work and it's time to celebrate the redemption that's happened in your life and focus on the good. You're here. You're sitting here together. It's a great thing. Celebrate that. Start there. So as we close, we're going to sing this last song and I want you to just sit quietly and ask, just ask the Lord. And if the Lord is silent, maybe... You know, there's this great scripture where Jesus himself actually says, you're trying to bring things to the altar and I'm not receiving it because there's something between you and a brother. You gotta go fix that first. So sit for just a moment and ask the Lord to open your heart and reveal to you what's, what's, what's the step, what's the thing. What's the thing you need to do today, tonight? Because the clock is ticking. And the enemy is winning with every second that it ticks. What do you need to do? And if you need prayer tonight because there's a relationship that you need to grieve. Oh man, I've been there too. And it's hard to walk through that but it is so worth grieving because God walks you th- with you through it. It is not something you want to miss. Let me pray for us. Oh God, you are so good. You are so, you're a master chess player. There are things in our life that you see that we cannot see. And you have plans for restoration that we don't know yet. Oh, Lord, you have so much hope ready for us if we would just turn to you and do it your way. If we would just lean in and feel the tough stuff. You love every single soul in this room. You created them to long for you and long for each other and long for right relationships and long for healing and long for forgiveness. You have given them and created in them the courage Oh, they have the courage to fight on the battlefield of this world. They definitely have the courage to fight the battlefield for these relationships. Do not let the enemy win in that. Remind them of the courage that they are warriors not built just for this world. They are built as warriors for their marriage, for their children. They are warriors for you first. And you've given them and equipped them with everything that they need to win in that battle. But they cannot do it without you. And I'm asking you to come alongside them. 
reveal in their hearts what you want them to do and give them the courage to restore what you want to restore and begin a new work tonight. Begin a new creation. Begin new marriages. Begin new fathers and mothers. Begin new souls that are ready for repair and are not scared of it. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Life Giver Podcast. If you're enjoying these episodes, please share the podcast with other service couples that may benefit from the show. If you'd like more information about me or Life Giver, head on over to coreyweathers.com or life-giver.org.